BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, ladies. Hello, gentlemen. This is the Victor Davis Hanson Show. I'm Jack Fowler, the host. We are recording on Sunday, July 10th, 2022. The star and namesake, Victor Davis Hanson, is the Martin and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Wayne and Marsha Buskey Distinguished Fellow in History at Hillsdale College. Victor writes a lot, and a lot of what he writes that's exclusive can be found at victorhanson.com, about which we will talk a little bit later in the show. Today's show, Victor, let's start off talking about the hounding of Justice Kavanaugh and some news that has just come out today, a bounty for the sightings of any of the the bad conservative Supreme Court justices. And we'll uh, get your thoughts on all that and plenty more right after these important messages. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. So, Victor, I'm sure our listeners have heard the news about the assassination attempt against Justice Kavanaugh. But the other day, he was hounded out of a restaurant in Washington, D.C. He was cited by some lefties who then called the owner and demanded he not be served. He and his family had to leave through the back door of the restaurant. And then, of course, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez tweeted about it, mocked him. So we have you know, the public hounding of our justices. And then on top of that, Victor, this morning, I found on Bongino Report a link to this article. It's called, uh, it's from PM, Bounties on Sighting of Supreme Court Justices Offered by Left-Wing Activists Group. It's called Shutdown DC, and it posted this. If you see Kavanaugh, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, Coney Barrett, or Roberts, DM us with the details. We'll Venmo you $50 for confirmed sighting and $200 if they're still there 30 minutes after your message. I wonder what Merrick Garland would have to say about that. But more importantly, I wonder what you have to say about it. Yeah, nothing. You know, they really push the envelope. So just absorb all of what's going on. We have a new precedent that if you're left wing, and that's who did it, you can leak a confidential preliminary opinion from the Supreme Court, which is illegal. And it's a felony under the federal code to mass at the house of a judge for the purposes of uh, influencing their decision making. And that was not, Merrick Garland didn't do anything like that. We got to remember that, uh, I think his name was Nicholas uh, Roski. He showed up right near the lawn of of Kavanaugh with an intention to kill him. And then he sort of, I guess, had second thoughts. This comes after two years ago where the Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer said, you have sowed 
the wind and you shall weep the whirlwind and you won't know what hit you, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. This comes after uh, Elizabeth Warren, a law professor at Harvard, no less at one time, said that the court was illegitimate. This comes after Joe Biden goes to Spain and in front of a Spanish host trashes the court. And then, of course, he, I don't know the circumstances, Jack, about the 10-year-old tragic rape victim, but there's a lot of alternative news that suggests that they have not, there is no perpetrator that has been prosecuted for that crime. And there's some question, but it didn't stop Joe Biden because he demagogued. My point with all this is at some point, somebody's going to get shot because there hasn't been a word from Joe Biden or Merrick Garland saying, you know what, stop it. And what is really irritating about this is, believe me, if Mitch McConnell went out there and said, Kagan, Sotomayor, you don't know what's going to hit you. And if Trump went overseas and said this damn court or this, this they, you wouldn't be able to even monitor the outrage. If people went to Kagan's house or Sotomayor or a new justice and started screaming and yelling or they put bounties on them, there would be outrage. So what I'm getting at, Jack, is that there, we have been presented with an asymmetrical situation that's predicated on this narrative that the left is morally and intellectually superior and therefore is not forced to face the consequences of their own bankrupt ideology. So they think they're exempt and don't do what we're doing. Only we can do it. That permeates the entire political discourse, whether it's sanctuary cities or anything. And it's got to stop because we're headed down to a Claudius and Milo late Roman Republic civil warring back and forth. And uh, Joe Biden hit 30% in the civics poll today. And I think he's going to get into the 20s. So he is being utterly repudiated. And I think everybody's to take a deep breath and say, if you want to stop this, 10, 20 seats in the House ain't going to do it. You're going to need 50, 60, 70. You're going to need four or five Senate. Anybody in that party that doesn't speak out against this is complicit. And this goes on at the same time, of course, that the media is going gaga over Liz Cheney for a bunch of buffoons that went into the Capitol, committed felonies by desecrating the House chambers and rightly were punished. But she has made this into a moral crusade and she's raising millions of dollars and et cetera, et cetera. But nobody says a word. She hasn't said a word. Nobody says about this is life and death, as we saw with Steve Scalise. Almost. So I hope that people realize what's going on and it has to have a, a vote of the people against this. And it's got to be an Old Testament. And we've had this discussion before, uh, Jack, when the Republicans take the House and there's the New Testament and the Old Testament approaches. They're not mutually exclusive. They have time to do both and the ability to do both. But at some point, if Joe Biden does not enforce the laws, and that's primarily at the border, and Merrick Garland politicizes, people are going to have to be impeached. Just that they won't be convicted in the Senate unless they get 60 votes, but they need to be impeached just to let, the, let them know that you started a precedent that you can impeach a first-term president when he loses the House. And you did it on a phone call. We're doing it on a constitutional question of not faithfully executing the laws as sworn to do so. And they need to have at least five or six concurrent investigations of Hunter Biden and his tax problems and his father's interrelationship and tax problems with him and the politicalization of the FBI. What is it doing at school board meetings? What's it doing as a family Biden retrieval service? So these things need to have consequences and they don't have consequences right now. And they'll keep going until somebody says, you know what, you cannot sustain a republic when the Supreme Court is attacked. And it's highly ironic because when the court had a liberal majority for 30 years, the Warren Court, we were told that the court should be a executive, legislative and judicial branch. And it was and it legislated. And every time they tried to Eisenhower or Nixon. Or the Bushes tried to put a judge in there, whether it was David Souter or John Paul Stevens or Potter, whoever they were, they flipped. And that's what the left was giddy about. And now they don't. 
other than John Roberts. And they, it's, it's like a teenager, you know, I'm losing the game. So I'm going to throw the, uh, destroy the board and throw all the players off my table. That's how they act on everything. Well, they, they, they need a message. They need a is, message. That assumes they, uh, they accept the rules and to abide by them, which, which I'd like to get a little more into, but Victor on your, not a rant, your, your elaboration of what should take place in 2023 politically. And I would like to suggest a little bipartisanship investigation approach uh, outside of Capitol Hill, but more towards K Street to see who has their hand in the China till. And Frank Wolf, who was a, a congressman from Northern Virginia, very active, very pro-life, very active in human rights. And he's still uh, active in that. And he contacted me a while ago about the disgrace of, of his former colleagues, both sides, Democrat, Republican. You would not have seen in 1970, 1980, a retired Republican senator or congressman working in any way for a firm that was benefiting Russia, the Soviet Union, excuse me, or any Eastern Bloc nation, or at the time, China. Now, you, you know, you can't you swing a dead cat and you'd, you'd hit a dozen of them. So I think that needs uh, that, that. That's not a, a congressional investigation, but uh, some intrepid journalists should uh, strap on a set and do a thorough investigation of who's. Uh, they should. I think we all know the people involved. It's about four institutions. It's academia, and I'm speaking as a sort of member of the Stanford University community. And remember, during the Trump administration, they were fined, I think, several million dollars for not reporting gifts from the Chinese government. The Department of Education fined them. We had a member of the Chinese military masquerading as a visiting professor, I think, of neuroscience. And we have these Confucius Institutes with their fronts for observation and surveillance of Chinese students, as well as propaganda. And so why did, would Stanford or Harvard or Yale do these things? Because of the money, 380,000 Chinese students, and most of them, I think, are highly connected in China, and they're the children of party members and functionaries. And so academia is compromised. Professional sports are compromised. I mean, Steve Kerr can't open his mouth without trying to have some moral relevant argument about China versus us and LeBron James, nothing to be said. He can talk about every little petite injustice in the world that justifies not, you know, standing up for the flag that's made him rich, but he can't say one word about this atrocious fascist government in China that puts a million people in education camps. He won't say a word because he's got a lifetime contract that will be monetized at about a million, a billion dollars. And we know the corporate boardroom, no need to talk there. I mean, all Bill Gates was praising the Chinese reaction to the epidemic at the very moment when China was stonewalling and not turning over documents. And he was still bragging about how wonderful they had reacted. And he, of course, Microsoft was one of the first companies to invest heavily in China. And so we know the media as well. I mean, Hollywood was told by the Chinese government we do not want darker skin actors, too many of them, in, in movies that will be shown in China. And they click their heels and say, absolutely, we'll do that. This is liberal Hollywood. And the media, of course, ran with the Chinese lie that we were racist for having a travel ban. So it's those four or five institutions that are doing it, and they're all being enriched by the Chinese. And they have contempt. I think everybody should remember that. They think that these wealthy American Westerners are decadent and they can be bought for 10 cents on the dollar. And they can. And they feel that they can steal technology. They can bully their neighbors. They can unleash, whether on, you know, deliberately or by accident, a virus that pretty much killed a million Americans. And if you dare object to that, you're a racist. And so they're insidious, the Chinese communists. And it's it's scary. And yet here we are, 330 million people with a GDP, even in our, in our decline, that's about 40 to 50 percent still, however we measure it, greater than the economy of China that has at its, you know, as its potential, 1.4 billion people. 
And so we only have about a fifth of its population and we produce almost some, some years we were producing almost twice the goods and services. So we still have the wherewithal to confront China if we want. Trump did it. And of course, he was called as the institutions rallied to save their financial investment. He was called a racist. That's what the left does, Jack. Anytime that their money is threatened or their elite status is threatened, they call people racist or sexist. But it's usually about class. I mean, they're very, they're very selfish, wealthy people now. They're the party of Marie Antoinette. And that's not right. fair to Marie Antoinette because we know she didn't say, let them eat cake. But right. you know, they did say, <laughs> let just go buy a Tesla. Buy a Tesla. Right. Well, if you can, go ahead. Uh, Victor, back on the uh, teenage tantrum aspect of what you were talking about before, strikes me, stricken us all our whole lives. America has been called uh, a nation of laws, right? That's what we're about. Not unless, uh, for some people, not if the laws uh, don't please you. So what we have in some of these reactions to the recent Supreme Court decisions last week, Joe Biden issued an executive order, I think that tantrum might apply to that, directing various agencies of the federal government to do what it can to circumvent, not the technical term he used, but essentially to circumvent the Supreme Court's Dobbs decision, task force being formed. Uh, we've heard talk, you know, use of federal lands, etc. So we have this, uh, you know, flipping the bird at that decision. And then the Supreme Court decision on the New York gun laws has you know, received a, a tip, I'll call it typical, similar reaction. The court has spoken, has spoken clearly. We are in a blue state. What do we do to circumvent, obfuscate, disregard the Supreme Court decision? So in, in New York, I'm looking at Legal Insurrection, by the way, which is a great website, Legal Insurrection. I recommend folks uh, check it out. Uh, Bill Jacobson runs it. Uh, one week after the Supreme Court struck down a law limiting the spread of concealed handguns in New York, state Democratic leaders on Friday were expected to respond with new measures that would prohibit people from carrying firearms in many public settings deemed, quote unquote, sensitive places. The ban would apply to places like colleges, hospitals, subways, parks, the latter two are where you're most likely to get mugged and raped, by the way, stadiums and even Times Square a last-minute addition to the late-night negotiations. It would also extend to any private property, such as bar, restaurant, or home, unless the property owner expressly allows guns, which they can do by placing a sign on their premises. So, Victor, we don't like what the Supreme Court ruled. We, essentially, we don't like our Constitution, and this is how we're going to react, uh, deal with it, America. Your rights are not your rights. Your rights are our rights, and we're going to deem them. Uh, if and when. So yeah, it, it's it's the same theme that we were talking about. I mean, JFK and RFK in 1963, rightfully so, nationalized the Alabama State Guard because George Wallace defied a court ruling about integrating the University of Alabama. And so the federal government had a right to do that. And so what they are saying is it's sort of uh, a reversal that the federal government obeys the Supreme Court. And there are insurrectionists. They're saying, no, we're going to find a way with an executive order to serve. I don't know how they're going to do that because it's unconstitutional. And remember, the, the, the Supreme Court didn't say, it didn't say abortion is, shall now be legal in the United States. It just simply said the state shall decide what the position on abortion will be the law within their state jurisdictions. And so now Joe Biden, uh, and remember, Jack, about 10% of abortions take place in so-called red states that will probably have some restrictions on abortion. But the left is saying, we're going to go into those states and we're going to allow that 10% of the women who want to have an abortion to have an abortion somehow. And they're, 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 they've had all different strategies. They're going to have, you know, you can have abortion pills sent in the mail. And it'll be a Herculean task to check whether that and that, that's not very safe to do it without a doctor's supervision. But nevertheless, that's what will happen. And then they want to have federal facilities, national parks, military bases. That is not only uh, defying the Supreme Court, 
uh, and that goes back to the Civil War about federal property within state jurisdictions. But more importantly, it violates that 1980 Hyde Amendment that said no federal funds shall be used to facilitate abortion except in the cases of saving the life of the mother. And I think that saved 300,000 children from being aborted in a year. And so they are lawless and they're revolutionaries. I think everybody got has to realize that going back to ancient Athens, the demos, or you go into the Roman Republic in its last few years, or you look at the French Revolution, or you look at the Bolsheviks, how they took power. They, the left is lawless. It, and look at what happened in Cuba. What, they, what I mean by lawless is they feel that their revolutionary fervor and their commitment to radical equality and equality of result entails them to use government power to ensure that everybody beneath them, beneath this elite, is equal. And because that is so morally superior to any other idea, they have the right to ignore the law and make their own morally superior law. And that's what they do. And they do it with sanctuary cities. They do it with uh, destroying federal immigration law and opening the border. They're doing, they're going to try to do it with abortion. And the one thing to remember about the left is that it's not symmetrical. If you're some uh, little county in Utah and you say, hey, sanctuary cities is the thing of the day now. Okay, no federal gun registration for handguns or you know what, if you want to go bulldoze that little three-spotted lizard, go ahead. We don't have anything federal and dangerous, but you're going to be in trouble. And so I think everybody should take a big pause, Jack, at this point and say, you know what, we have given Joe Biden a year and a half. This is the worst presidency in modern memory. I can't James, think of anything. James Buchanan that, is happy right now. Yes, he is happy, <laughs> but he was probably better than Joe Biden. Joe yeah. Biden is not only non compos mentes, but he has unleashed people to act in a, a fashion that is utterly illegal. And whether it's putting Navarro in chains or going after James O'Keefe for the SWAT team, he has absolutely politicized the Department of Justice and the FBI. And I don't know how you... If you have a Republican president, the first thing they should do is fire the entire hierarchy of the Washington FBI and then break that thing up and put it in Kansas City, because yeah. we're going to see it as a personal retrieval service of a president It goes after diaries. It goes after school board parents. It goes after laptops and to keep them on ice for the election. And, uh, it, and the Pentagon has been completely politicized under Mark Milley and Austin. And almost every institution is now a revolutionary institution that's woke. And right. that's and you can see it. You can see the symptoms of it, the symptomology. You see 40% shortfall on enrollment and recruitment into the military because people don't want any part of that woke revolution. Right. And they know what's going to happen if they enroll. And the same thing, we have a million less students because a lot of students in the United States say, you know what? I am not going to borrow fifty to eighty thousand dollars and right. walk on a campus with a big target on my back as a racist or a sexist or a predator. I'm not going to do that. I have young people that write me all the time and college students, and they say things that are just absolutely incredible. Or their parents will say something like, "Can you imagine a mother telling her child going off to a four-year institution? I do not want you to date anybody on campus." That's what they say. Don't date anybody on campus. Do not get involved in any political organization, left or right. right. Do not say anything. Do not go on social media. Erase your high school account. That's what they tell their kids because they understand that they're going into an Orwellian world. Right. And well, that Barry Weiss, I, I just quickly read through one of her Substack pieces, and she mentioned, I forget the person's name now, but it was to be to be an editor of Teen Vogue, uh, who who then was quickly yeah, was she was I canceled that. because of high school posts. You know, so you know you hear you hear that a couple of times, and you know, uh, yeah, it's 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 uh, hard, but maybe very practical parental advice. But Victor, let's um, you mentioned the military and the wokeness, and we've talked about this many times. And there's a little bit of a reverse on that now. 
and it's about a general getting canceled. And I'd like to get your thoughts on that, but right after these important messages. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson Show. Again, we're recording on Sunday, the uh, 10th of July. This particular podcast will be up and at you on the 12th, Tuesday, the 12th. I want to recommend to our listeners to visit victorhanson.com. That's the website where it's the catch-all of everything Victor writes, including material that is exclusive to that website. It's called Those articles are called Ultra. And you can't read them unless you subscribe. And subscribing is so damn reasonable, it's not funny. $5 a month. Just once, t- take out a $5 Try, uh, test drive, victorhanson.com. You're going to love it. Full year is $50. Uh, most recent ultra stuff up there is, is Victor gets around to this every once in a blue moon, and it's called the, uh, angry, uh, the angry Reader, and he responds to Angry Reader and uh, takes them apart. Um, Victor, we don't have to get into this, so I just have to say, here's one Angry Reader, from Vince C., that you got to, an email from subject, you should have been aborted. Conservatives like you are the scum of the earth, worthless pieces of trash, blank you, Vince C. And then you respond to that and others. Victor, you're a funny man, I have to admit. You <laughs> I get a lot of those. Like, I have a, an assistant that goes through them. And some of them we can't put on because they're scatological and stuff in detail. Yeah. But there's more intellectual stuff than that. But it's nice to see you uh, kneecap. Uh, people who need kneecapping. So speaking of being kneecapped, Victor, uh, here's a headline from uh, USA Today. Retired three-star general suspended from army contract after tweet that appeared to mock Jill Biden. Biden. So our readers will just bear with me here a second. And, you know, we're, we're constantly talking about problems with the higher echelons of the military. But here's one that's a little different from the kind of stuff we've talked about uh, recently. A retired three-star general has been suspended from a $92 an hour contract consulting the Army and is under investigation after posting a tweet that appeared to mock First Lady Jill Biden, Jill Biden on a hot-button social issue, according to the Army. Retired Lieutenant General Gary Valesky the Army's former top spokesman and recipient of the Silver Star for Gallantry in Iraq, has been a, quote-unquote, senior mentor, advising senior military officers, staff, and students participating in war games and other military activities. Guess what? Lieutenant General Theodore Martin, commander of the Combined Arms Center, suspended Valesky. Pending the outcome of the inquiry, Cynthia Smith, an Army spokeswoman, told USA Today, what happened? On June 24th, the First Lady posted a tweet condemning the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Quote, for nearly 50 years, women have had the right to make our own decisions about our bodies. Today, that right was stolen. That's what Jill Biden tweeted, to which Valesky replied with his own tweet. Glad to see you finally know what a woman is. And quote, that tweet has been deleted. He also um, uh, had some controversial tweet, by the way, Victor, earlier in the year, mocking the January 6th committee, I think, in, in a not inappropriate way. So 
wow, you have a, you know, a retired general. Uh, I think it's kind of funny, right? Uh, certainly, no, I mean, it's free it's, speech, but what, what, go ahead, have at it. It's a, it's, it's actually a complex issue because uh, Article eighty-eight of the Uniform Code of Military Justice says that no commissioned officer shall use. I think the word they use was contemptuous to be contemptuous words, and that would be directed. I mean, it's a whole group of people about top-ranking public public elected officials, the president and the cabinet. It, so the first thing to remember, it doesn't say anything about the first lady. She's not an elected official. So that's one issue to keep in mind. The second issue is he's not being punished. As And I, I want to note here that a lot of courts uh, and legal opinion have said that retired military officers on a pension and subject to recall are subject to the Uniform Code of Military Justice, just as are active. So he's retired and he's used contemptuous words in a way. They're not all that contemptuous. They're sarcastic toward the first lady, but she's not an elected official. So he's not being punished uh, under the Uniform Code of Military Justice because he can't because he did not uh, insult a there's two things. Remember, he wouldn't anyway uh, if he was liberal, but he as a conservative, he might have been. But he's not because he didn't do that. So what he's doing is the Pentagon has decided that in this politicized atmosphere that he sh I guess Lloyd Austin has decided that he shall not get contractual employment anymore. OK, the problem with all this is it is so asymmetrical. Because if you really want to look at contemptuous words, not directed at, at a non-elected official, but directed at a elected official, in fact, the highest elected official in the United States, Donald Trump, then you have a whole rogues gallery of retired officers subject to Article 88. You've got uh, Michael Hayden, the former CIA director, four-star general, comparing Trump's uh, border policies to Auschwitz. You have Stanley McChrystal, who says he is a he's an he's a liar, liar. You have uh, General McCaffrey, who said he's a Mussolini. You have General Mattis, who used a D-Day simile that suggested the president was playing the role of a Nazi. And I could go on. Nothing, nothing happened to them. If any one of those officers had said the same thing right now about Joe Biden, there would be a call to, to subject them all to Article 88. So we have to be careful here when we put it all back together, Jack, is that the general in question was not uh, prosecuted in a court-martial, which the statute said should happen uh, to active officers and which has been interpreted to apply to retired officers. He has not been uh you know, indicted or brought up on charges for his language of using contemptuous words. But he has had his consulting uh, job terminated. So this begs the question of all of those generals that I mentioned that violated Article 88 without consequence, did any of them have ongoing government contracts? And that would be something new I would like to know. I mean, because there's a lot of them. I, mean, I just mentioned seven or eight, but there's 20 or 30 of them that came out. I mean, General Allen, who now has had to resign at the head of the Brookings because he's under suspicion of being a foreign agent in the sense that a foreign lobbyist and did not declare that under the Foreign Agent Act. He was very contemptuous of his commander in chief. So my point is, did any of them have continual uh, ad hoc financial relationships with federal bureaucracies. And if they did, why, were not, why weren't those uh, contracts terminated? And by the way, contemptuous words, making fun of, of Jill Biden about, you know, you're against abortion and you're saying women's rights. I mean, you're for abortion. Women's rights have been abrogated, according to you. But then you're also suggesting that women don't have exclusive Exclusivity. Men can, have, men, men can have babies. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was it was sarcastic, but it was not your Hitler, your Mussolini, your Auschwitz. Right. So the left just does that. And again, this is a question that that's going to permeate every one of our podcasts in the next few months. And I hope every single 
person who's listening, this is an existential uh, dilemma that everybody has. So when you select your nominee from ever, whichever party, but if you're angry with a situation, you have two considerations. A, the electability of your favorite candidate. The issue, I should say three, B, the issues on which they're going to run and, and advance. But more importantly, to the degree they have fire in the belly. Are they just going to go in there and, you know what I mean? They're just going right. to say, well, this is just the same. You know, you know, Mitt Romney, yeah. you know, here's Mitt Romney telling everybody that Joe Biden is a fine person when in 2012, his Republican establishment was sending out emails, chain emails to all columnists and so-called opinion makers suggesting that it was very unfair that Joe, Joe Biden had called him a racist by saying, put you all in change. And that was just one of his felonies. Remember, they he tortured dogs on top right. of his roof. His wife yeah. was an elite that had a, um, a horseback riding apparatus. He gave uh, a kid a haircut that he didn't yeah. want in a yeah. prep school. Something had like an that. elevator in his house, uh, didn't talk to his garbage man, all these felonies in Mitt Romney. And so he was all angry at Joe Biden. But this is what I can't understand getting to another subject. If you look at every issue that he advanced in 2012 and you put them on the other side of the ledger with Donald Trump, what he ran, they're almost the same. He was he said he was tough on the border. He said he was going to deregulate. He said he was going to reduce taxes. He said he was going to promote energy development. And he said he would have a deterrent foreign policy. So here he is saying basically to the American people, Joe Biden, who had slandered and smeared me and tried to destroy my character, is a fine person. But the Republican nominee of my own party who endorsed me to return to the Senate and help me get elected in Utah is not. And he shares the same ideology and policy agenda that I do. I don't understand. Even though I wished he had appointed me Secretary of State. Yeah, well, that was Trump. That was something that I think Trump to be fair to Romney, I think Trump set him rubbing, up, <laughs> rubbing his snout in the in the yeah. muck. Yeah. yeah. Hey, since uh, we're um, okay about mocking Biden a little bit, let's not mock Joe Biden. Let's mock Joe Biden, and, and I hope we can keep this a little short because um, later on in the podcast, Victor, I'd like to uh, us to talk a little bit or hear you talk a little bit about the anniversary of what today is and Battle Britain commenced on uh, July. 10th in 1940. It was also a significant day in the uh, Pacific theater as massive bombing campaigns against uh, Japan began on July 10th, 1945. And so we'd like to get a little of Victor, the military historian, and then hopefully have a little time left for your thoughts about uh, Abe Shinzo, the uh, assassinated former prime minister of Japan. But before that, Victor, we saw with our own eyes and heard with our ears, Joe Biden reading from the teleprompter the other day uh, where he, he repeat the line, end of quote, repeat the line. And of course, he was immediately mocked by people who reminded him of the movie Anchorman, where the, the goofball Anchorman reads <laughs> directly from the teleprompter. So this is what happened on, on Twitter. Uh, of course, somebody put up uh, well, the anchorman, you know, he read he read from the teleprompter. And so White House Assistant Press Secretary M- Emily Simon said, no, he said, quote, let me repeat that line, end quote. What Biden said was repeat the line <laughs> clearly was re- <laughs> so. But that this is such a, you know, t- it's a tiny thing. Right. But it's a big thing, like a, a bare faced public lie. By the and the White House, of course, also doctored the transcript of of uh, of uh, Biden's remarks. Let me repeat that line. No, he the word let <laughs> the word me was not the word that were not in what Biden said. He said repeat the line. Victor, your thoughts well, see, about this? The, th- the thing about Biden is the right and his opposition doesn't have to lie with Trump because he was undisciplined in his speech sometimes. But it was usually in a minor fashion. He said things that were cruel, or, but the main things, I mean, he didn't say that they were suckers at Normandy. That was one person in a room that lied uh, to the media about that when everybody else denied that he had said it or 
any of these other things about drinking bleach. Remember that one? He just said, wouldn't it be good to have a disinfectant that would people could use somehow without, you know, but he didn't say swallow bleach. But my point is that with Biden, you can't because he, he, he says things that are, are on record and people hear them and they cannot be explained away. There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody in that room who heard him and said, no, no, he did say, let me repeat this. So you just have to you're stuck with that reality. It would be as if 28 people in a room said Donald Trump said they were suckers, but they didn't. Only one did. And everybody contradicted them. So. With Biden, what do you do if you're the press secretary? I mean, you just say, okay, you heard it. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, you know, if I were the press secretary, I would say if you're president of the United States and you're speaking all day long, which he isn't, and you have all of these different lectures, some once in a while that teleprompter mesmerizes you you and you do the prompt line. Big deal. But they can't do that because they can't admit the obvious that he's not able right uh to perform the duties of president and right now as you and I are talking and our audience is listening believe me there are some big billionaires in silicon valley and wall street and hollywood and they are on the phone 24/7 what are we going to do with this wreck of a president he's going to take us all down how do we get rid of him it's sort of murder in the cathedral. I don't mean murder literally, but who is going right. to relieve me of Joe Biden? Yeah. Who will and, not rid us of this priest? Yes. And Troublesome so, priest. And so they're thinking, how do we do we own Kamala Harris? Do we can, can we control her? Can we muzzle her with her 500 word vocabulary and her repetitive nonsense? Can we just put her on? That's what they're talking about. Right. And so he, he's not sustainable. And he's just and for the rest of us who told everybody that I, I wrote five columns saying this was going to be a disaster if right. you put him in. And I got really chastised. I think in, I won't mention the anchor person, but on Fox News, I said he was reptilian like mm-hmm. he was. He looked reptilian. I said he looks bloodless. And somebody thought that was cruel for me to say that. But I didn't mean it to be cruel. I was trying to warn people that whatever your ideology, he's not up to it. And if you go back and look at those primary debates, Jack, in 2020, people on the stage said that. Cory Booker was making fun of Biden's confusion. They all did. And that was one of the things they used against him, that he was not there. And so this is a situation where, again, irony, irony, irony. We had a president that whatever you said about him, that guy worked 20 hours a day, Donald Trump did. And yet on the 11th day, Rosa Brooks wrote in Foreign Affairs, how you get rid of a military coup, 25th Amendment impeachment. And then we had the 25th Amendment. The 20. Remember the Bandy Lee, the Yale psychologist that came and said that he was crazy. She testified before Congress and he needed an intervention, i.e. a straitjacket to remove him. Right. And we had that psychodrama between Rod Rosenstein and Andrew McCabe about who was going to bell the cat, where the, the mic or something. Weren't they going to survey or did they survey the cabinet to find the votes to remove him? And here you have a guy who finally, for the first time in the history of the 25th Amendment, fits all of the categories of being oh disabled. Gosh. Right. And no one says a word. No one. Where is uh, the FBI? You know, where is the Merrick Garland? Is uh, Christopher Ray and Merrick Garland going to wear a wire? Uh, they're out looking for parents at yeah, school board meetings. Busy at school board meetings and uh, turning the other way when people go to justice's homes to yeah. harass them. Well, Victor, yeah. let's uh, let's talk about the uh, today's anniversary and we'll get to your thoughts. Victor, the military historian, right after these important messages. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, 
Father Brown and Death in Paradise, plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. We're back with the Victor Davis Hanson show. Again, we're recording on July 10th and it dawned on me uh, doing a little research that today uh, was uh, the anniversary of the beginning of the Battle of Britain in 1940, which lasted nearly four months. And then coincidentally, as the war was uh, ending today in, in 1945, July 10th began the really massive air campaign against Japan carrier based I read somewhere like a thousand bomber raids a day. I mean, yeah. how many how many planes were 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 flying? So three to four hundred in each one. Of course, I want to recommend to our listeners to to uh, if you haven't gotten it already, the Second World Wars by Victor, bestseller from I think twenty seventeen. Um, it is really one of the the best uh, kind of a new perspective from when it was published. Um, of um, that time period. Uh, Victor, any general thoughts you want to share about how, let's take the Battle of Britain, how vital was it? Um, Well, everybody should remember that Britain was the only belligerent, the only combatant in World War II among the major powers that fought the first day of the war on September 1st to 2nd, 1939, to the end of the war, September 2nd or 3rd, 2nd, 1945. No other, no other power fought the entire six years. And then secondly, it was the only country that went to war for the principle of sovereignty of another nation. We didn't do that. We went to war because we were attacked. Russia went to the war, end of the war because they were attacked. Germany attacked people. Italy attacked people. Britain was different. And they sometimes don't give their due, but after the fall of France, remember when Hitler invaded France and the Low Countries, Belgium and Luxembourg and the Netherlands on May 10th, by mid-June, June 23rd, it was all over with. And at that point, uh, there was no Europe as we know it. The EU today was either neutral but pro-German, that would be Portugal, Sweden, Spain, or it was occupied, France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Norway, Denmark, uh, Yugoslavia would be would be occupied, and Greece in October 1940. And, you know the Oki days. So it was all there. It was all under German, or it was pro-German. And those were most of the Eastern European countries, like that were not conquered, like Poland. But I'm talking about or Czechoslovakia that had been conquered. But you know Romania and Hungary. So they had all the advantages and they had a a seasoned army. And so everybody thought the only thing left is Britain and its empire. And they were going to cut it off. But this was not going to be, when they call it battle, it was just an air battle. And everybody was so scared of the Luftwaffe. So they thought the Luftwaffe had fought the RAF over France. And they had lost, the RAF had lost three or 400 planes. So they thought, you know what? Once we bomb, they'll be out of planes. They'll be out of pilots. We're going to level the, we're going to first, we're going to take out their radar. And they started that. And then we're going to take out their airfields. Then they'll be defenseless. And then our bombers will start terror bombing and incendiary attacks. And they will sue for peace. And if they don't, then uh, we're going to send our surface fleet, such as it is, it's small, but without air cover, the British couldn't do much. I hate to interrupt, Victor, but did they have the right, the Germans have the right to have that mindset? Because did the RAF perform poorly? No, in that's the Battle my point. Of France? Yeah, that's my point. What I'm saying, okay. that's what they thought. Right. Okay. But when you actually looked at the circumstances, 
they perform very well because the hurricane, their mainstay, twice as many hurricanes as Spitfires, they were 40 or 50, 30 to 50 miles slower than the BF-109, what's sometimes, you know, in slang called the Mischerschmitt 109, although it was farmed out. And the, the Germans, but when you actually look at the performance, when the Spitfires were fighting, they were as good. And Germans never admitted that. But if you look at the initial Spitfires, it was comparable to German BF-109. And when you look at the iterations, 1 to 10, it got better, much better. But my point is that if you looked at the individual circumstances, that is, British planes having to fly over the channel and then fight with French planes that were either based on the German border or already in advanced fields, they did very well. And so the second thing to remember is that Hitler had not conducted a strategic sustained bombing campaign. He'd done it over Amsterdam, Rotterdam, et cetera, but not really. And it's too complicated to get into, but they had never, ever developed a four-engine bomber. And they were kind of ahead of their time in the way that, you know, airliners today, except we're going beyond the 747 or the 707 with four in sales. You know, there's not four engine coverings and mountings. So the idea is you have two and then you have less drag and the two are big engines. So that's what the Germans were obsessed with. And it was a flawed concept at that time. In fact, they finally went into putting a two engines in line with a, and some models, I think, and it was a disaster. But my point is this, is if you don't have a four-engine bomber that can hold 10 ton of bombs or five ton of bombs, you're not going to be in a cost-effective manner. So they had these, they had a Derners and they had a Heinkel and they had a Junkers. But really, when you look at it, the only one that was really a workhorse was the Heinkel and it had two engines and the Junkers was fast. But they didn't have the up, and this is a time the the comparable force. And Britain had been flying; they were slow, you know. Hanley Page, Stanley, all these uh, precursors to the Lancaster bomber. But they had been flying four-engine bombers for a long time. And when the Lancaster came, and then the B seventeen, and then the B twenty, so the Allies were the only two powers that could do a four-engine bomber that could carry a heavy bomb load. So what I'm getting at is. These planes were not very fast, and they didn't have a high bomb load, and their tactics of taking out the radar and getting rid of the airfields was working, but it was very slow, and they had to first get rid of the RAF, and the problem they had was the RAF was not static. They were improving their radar. They were producing wild bomb, three to 400 airframes a month. They were getting pilots from all over the free world that were volunteering, some of them pretty good. And they were using the first, they had discovered high octane aviation fuel and they were really supercharging their engines and they were, the hurricane was getting not comparable, but close. And then they had some brilliant people. Dowding was a really good commander. And he said, you know what? We'll put the hurricanes high. They'll dive down. They're a little heavier and they'll come in and hit these formations and they'll go after the bombers and then we'll turn the Spitfires against the German supporting aircraft, the fighter uh, aircraft. And it worked. And then when they started to bomb Germany haphazardly, ineffectively at night, Hitler went crazy and Goering was ordered to shift emphasis away from airfields and radar stations, which they had almost completely eliminated. Had they done it another two weeks, they probably would have won the war. But then he started firebombing London and Coventry, and it was spectacular, but it gave a needed breathing room for uh, the RAF to recover. And then once uh, they mastered their tactics and then they understood that uh, the advantages were all in the British side because they were flying over their home country. When you shot down a Spitfire, there was a 50% chance the pilot wasn't killed. He bailed out. Right. He was picked up by a special British service. He was sent right back to an airfield. He was given another airframe and he was right back in the war. The German pilots, as the British had discovered when they were fighting over France, got captured. Right. Or, and so the Germans didn't have very good airfields in France. They had grass airfields, makeshift as an occupational force. Some of them tried to bomb from Norway. It was too far. They had to fly across the channel and they were met 
just as uh, the Allies discovered when they flew over Europe, they were met with uh, relays of British fighters. And it went on and on and on. And finally, I think around November 1st, Hitler said, this was very strange. You know, he said, this is not going to work. And the Navy came to tell him that we don't have enough amphibious class. We do not have the U-boats have not obtained uh, maritime superiority. Of course, the British fleet is still the largest in the world at that time, right before the American push. And uh, we don't have air cover. So we can't invade Operation Sea Line. We cannot invade Britain. And Hitler said, it doesn't really matter because they're neutralized. We only are facing one combatant. The United States is not in it. The empire has trouble supplying it because of submarines in the Atlantic. We'll invade the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union has not done well. When we chopped up Poland, they were a little tardy. They went into Finland in 39. They were laggard there. In the 20s, they had tried to take Poland. They didn't do well. They just don't fight well when they're outside. And he was completely wrong. So he invaded, according to Hitler, we know from some of his his, uh, musings that have been recorded, he invaded the Soviet Union to take it in a month and then tell Britain, well, we weren't able to crack you, but now the Soviet Union is destroyed. We have its resources and you're completely surrounded. And of course, that didn't work out very well. And so one of the reasons, I think this is really important to remember, one of the reasons, not the reason, but one of the considerations why he invaded Russia on June 22nd, 1941, is that he had utterly failed in Britain. And he felt that the Wehrmacht, the war machine was much better on land than it was in the air or sea. And it could, it could defeat the Soviets. And then Britain would be, would be isolated. And of course that didn't work out too well. It was a very important battle to stop the momentum. It was the first time that the Wehrmacht had been defeated and it was a defeat. And one last consideration is we don't give the French enough credit. I know they, they lost 25,000 dead. They folded in six to seven weeks. But, you know, they, they had a Duante fighter, and it was very good. It was almost – so people had noticed that when Germany went into France, the French Char tank was better than the right. Mark II and III, and some of their aircraft were better or as good as the BF-109. But they just didn't have the operational discipline and control and logistics but on, and the will to fight. But what I'm getting at is if you total up lost aircraft to the French and British over during the battle for France from May 10th to June 20 something, 1940, and you total up all the airframes and pilots that were lost from you know mid-July all the way to no to the fall, July, the next November, that that November. And you then go into the battle for Crete in Greece in spring 1941, and you total up the Luftwaffe's capability and what it should have been given a year and a half of preparation after Poland to go into the Soviet Union. It's shocking. They had lost about 1,600, 1,700 planes. And they were mostly all to the British, whether over Greece, over Crete, but especially over Britain and over France. So the British RAF had pretty much ensured that there were no air reserves for Hitler should he hit a bump. And he hit it very quickly and he needed air support. He didn't have it. He didn't have logistical support. He didn't have bomb. He lost so many bombers over Britain. He was unable to have any strategic bombing campaign in Russia of any consequence. They tried it, but it was, they were, it was never successful. Victor, give this one minute, but because we, we do, running out of time, we do have to talk, get your thoughts about the assassination of Shinzo. You mentioned before the, the two-week period that really saved Britain here. Was the British bombing of German cities that made Hitler irate and switched the bombing of England to the major cities. Was that calculated? Was there some thought that if we do this somehow or other, that will impact the German strategy against Britain? Or was it just a payback thing that happened to work out that way? I think it it's hard to know because of the propaganda later, the tit for tat back and forth. We know that Hitler started 
to bomb Coventry because for the first time, uh, not only had the British, they had targeted Berlin and the, and the Germans felt they had targeted and they believed in something called, they don't like to use the word, it's taboo, carpet bombing, but they had a strategy called area bombing. And that would be famous under Bomber Harris. And that meant that they didn't feel they had the capability to drop a bomb down a smokestack of an industrial target. So they were going to bomb the area. And if they hit workers' houses or they hit water mains, all the better they felt because they even had a word de-house. They were going to de-house the German workforce. That became in later. But what I'm getting at is that anytime a British bomber took off, it was going to area bomb. And Hitler was enraged that while he was attacking Britain, they had the ability and the desire and the uppity. They were so uppity that they dared to go into Germany that he was going to retaliate. And there was a great controversy because of the ultra intelligence that the British had advance warning. You know, they were going to go after Coventry, which was a historical site. And they had to ask themselves, shall will we vector the RAF to stop that bombing raid? And they had the ability probably to do it, and they decided not to. And they allowed Coventry, I don't know how many people were killed, six, six, five or 6,000. And it was a disaster. But we know later that there was not any notion. The Germans did not have any idea about the ultra ability, that intelligence. So in hindsight, had they... I shouldn't say six or seven thousand, probably six or seven thousand. I meant injured, missing. I think there was about fifteen hundred killed. Casualties. Yeah. yeah. Casualties is what I meant. And that was in a variety of raids. They they, they didn't just do it once. But, uh, you know, they were having two two hundred bombers in April and then they did it in August. And they went all the way to 1942 and they kept hitting Coventry. And but my point is that. Had they defended Coventry and were waiting for them, the Germans would not have known that that strategy came from advanced intelligence. Victor, thanks for for this uh, worthwhile history lesson. So uh, let's end the program today with your thoughts on Shinzo Abe, the assassinated uh, Japanese prime minister. He served for 15 years in that capacity. Would you, as someone who is through your job at Hoover Military Strategy Organization that you run there. A lot of thought has gone into the Pacific nations and the countering of of the China threat. He was central to much of that. Is he a great figure? Or what's your assessment of him as a a national leader of the 21st century? Well, the thing to remember about Japan is that they had never gone through the confessionals that Germany did. I'm not sure Germany really did a good job either, but about World War II. And so they in their constitution, they were not supposed to be offensively armed, et cetera, et cetera. And so most Japanese leaders didn't want to talk about World War II. They did pay some reparations to some of the people they slaughtered. And uh, he was the first Japanese leader At some point is what I'm getting at, Jack, is at some point there was going to be a Japanese leader who had said for 30 or 40 or 50 years, I get it. Our fathers and grandfathers were militarists and they committed atrocities and we have we've apologized. I don't think they did sufficiently, but it would have been a lot worse to have a Hitlerian figure that would have marshaled nationalist sentiment because everybody's got nationalism, especially the ethno nationalism of the Japanese. So he comes along and he wants to ride that wave. And he's called, you know, I don't know what they call him in the left after his death was calling him fascist, right wing nationalist and all that. But the point I'm making is he was really the first Japanese minister that said, we're going to start thinking about rearming. And we have come to terms with Korea. What we did was wrong. And we understand that we have things in our past, but that's it. We're done with it. We're going to look at the future, and the future means China. And we're worried about China. We know we've committed atrocities in the past with China in World War II, but that's over. China is the aggressor now. And South Korea will not 
benefit anymore by trying to leverage us for more reparations. And that was very controversial for him to do that. But he didn't do it in a way that was, you know, like the Chinese are doing today. So he didn't, I don't think anybody was threatened in the area by the Japanese. It was just a a radical transformation in the early 21st century that a Japanese leader would say, we are transitioning into a defensive, a purely defensive power to one with offensive capabilities. We are worried about China. We're not reluctant to admit it. We are not going to dwell anymore on World War II. We're not going to be psychologically leveraged by any of the people who our grandparents, you know, murdered. It's over with. And then he applied sort of a, you know, a Ronald Reagan opened up the Japanese economy and that had mixed results, but it was probably better than what came before him or after him. And so he was very pro-American too. And he was much hated in the United States. I was very struck that the, you know, the, the obituaries that you saw in the major newspapers were not favorable. And a kind of a cheesy initial comment yeah, from yeah. Biden also uh, yeah. trying to play domestic politics off this guy's murder. He well, wrote Victor, a bestseller, I remember. That was a big deal right during the Iraq war. I don't know what the name of it was, but it was sometime around right when we were in the Iraq war. It was sort of like we're on our way to making toward a great country or something. It was a good book. Yeah. I, I remember I read excerpts of it. It was in English. Well, the fifth largest economy in the world. It's, it's part of the way there. Of course, tremendous demographic problems like many nations have, including America's in, is starting to have now. But you've talked about that with Sammy uh, on recent podcasts. So, but we're running out of time. So, Victor, I just want to cap the show as we always do with a comment from one of our listeners. No matter what platform you listen on, we appreciate it. Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes. I said iTunes and I said it for purpose. Some people do go to iTunes still. Some people go to Apple Podcasts. If you go there, you can leave a a rating, one to five stars. Please consider that. Victor deserves 10, but the most you can give is five. So you can also leave comments and we read them. And here's one. Excellent podcast, outstanding host, spectacular professor, and exemplary citizen. That's the title. Everyone would benefit from this podcast. Give a listen. Even if you disagree here and there, you still learn something, gain wisdom, and be entertained. I guarantee it. If not, you can sue me. And by the way, Mr. Fowler, stop listening to millennials chiding him for referring to iTunes. iTunes is still in use in addition to Apple, the Apple Music app. I know because I use it every day for podcast downloads on one of my older computers. I prefer the interface. Also, it has fewer bells and whistles, and I find it simpler to use. So, and sadly, I cut the name off of the person that wrote this, so appreciate it. But appreciate you taking the time to correct, you know, have, have my back a little bit, my ancient, my ancient back. Victor, thanks for all the great wisdom you shared today. Appreciate it immensely. Thanks, listeners, for listening. And we will be back soon with yet another episode of The Victor Davis Hanson Show. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I very much appreciate it.